Well, again, good morning to everyone. It's great to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me again to the book of 1 Samuel. And today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll be covering the first 30 verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1 to 30, and the title of today's lesson is David and Goliath, part one, Dare to Defy God. Dare to Defy God. So if you're able, since uh, we read God's word, I would ask that you would stand and let's honor God's word together by standing. And we'll be reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 30. Let's start with verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their camps for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. But Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and arranged themselves for battle to meet the Philistines. Now the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the camps of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and it was clothed with scale armor, and the weight of that scale armor was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze graves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. And he stood and called out to the battle lines of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to arrange yourselves for battle? Am I not the Philistine and you slaves of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and strike me down, then we will become your slaves. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, then you shall become our slaves and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I openly reproach the battle lines of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephrahite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And the three older sons of Jesse had gone. They had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. But David was the youngest. Now the three oldest had gone after Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to shepherd his father's flock at Bethlehem. Then the Philistine approached morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. 
And you shall also bring these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back a token from them. And Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper and carried the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the military force was going out in battle lines, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines arranged themselves in battle lines, battle line against battle line. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. And as he was speaking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Now all the men of Israel saw the man, and they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to reproach Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who strikes him down with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who strikes down this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should reproach the battle lines of the living God? And the people spoke to him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who strikes him down. Then Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I myself know your arrogance and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a word? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same word, and the people responded to him with the same word as before. Please be seated. Well, there was a recent survey that was conducted, and they asked the survey, the surveyors asked the people, what is the most famous Bible story in the Bible? And in the survey, ranked number one, was the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And rank number two is David and Goliath. Adults, young children even, have heard the story of David and Goliath. And in fact, now here in the United States, if you go to any sporting event where there is a heavy favorite and a helpless underdog, they will likely reference David and Goliath. And so let's jump right in here and look at part one of this most beloved story, and we'll organize today's passage into four sections. First, Goliath's defiance in verses 1 to 11. Second, David's dedication, verses 12 to 22. David's decisiveness, verses 23 to 27. 
And fourthly, Eliab's denunciation, verse 28 to 30. So at the start, in the first three verses, we, ha- we get introduced to the geography of what is about to take place. And we can read this in the first three verses of chapter 17. So look down with me. It reads, Now the Philistines gathered their camps for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belonged in Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. So I drew a little map here to just set kind of the orientation. So if you will recall, King Saul lives currently in Gibeah. At this point, Jerusalem is not of major significance, but if you go south a few miles, you will hit Bethlehem. Bethlehem is obviously the home of Jesse and our protagonist, David. And if you travel about 15 miles west or 25 kilometers west, you will reach the cities of Sokol and Azekah, which is east several miles from this important city of the Philistines, which is Gath. So the Philistines were sea people. So west of this region is the Mediterranean Sea. So the Philistines controlled all of the coastal area uh, of this area of Canaan with the uh, Israelites being on the inland side. So verse 2, it reads that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and they camped in the valley of Elah and arranged themselves for battle to meet the Philistines. So the Philistines lived here on the west. And so to cross from their region to the people of Israel, there were these foothills. They're not necessarily mountain ranges, but foothills certainly at least several hundred feet, maybe over a thousand feet in elevation. And so to get from west to east, you would have to go through one of the valleys through the Shephelah or the foothills of this area of Israel. And probably the ideal path from Gath to Gibeah and Bethlehem was through this valley that is called the Valley of Elah. All right. And in verse 3, it reads, Now the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So what the Philistines did was they came over from the west side through Gath, and they are walking through the valley of Elah, which is the lowland, and on either side, north and south, there would be the highland. So what the Philistines did was they encamped in between Soho and Asla on one side on the highland, and King Saul and the Israelites understand what was happening, took encampment on the highland on the other side with this valley or this ravine in the middle. And so if you recall in general when it comes to warfare, but especially warfare during this time, being on the highland was very important you would be sitting ducks if you kept on crossing this valley and you have people sitting above you. So the Philistines had paused here because they couldn't really cross since the Israelites had already taken their encampment. So this is the general idea of the geography that we learn in verses 1 to 3. And now we read the appearance of Goliath. 
right? The appearance of Goliath in verses 4 to 7. Let's read this again. Verse 4, then a champion came out from the camps of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This word that's translated here in verse 4, champion, it's actually only used in this chapter here in verse 4 and again in verse 23. And this word champion is a technical term and it denotes a person who basically steps out between two opposing armies to engage in a single combat where the outcome of the fight to the death between the two champions is taken as the will of the gods. And although there is another biblical account of this type of representative combat in 2 Samuel chapter 2, it appears that this protocol is actually rarely used during the time of these ancient Semitic people. So this is not something that typically happens. Usually two, two armies, they would just get at it, and if they're a casualty, there are casualties. Now, the Masoretic text, or the original Hebrew text, the oldest intact Hebrew text that we have, the Masoretic text says that Goliath's height was six cubits and one span. A cubit, as you may remember, is the distance between the elbow and the tip of your middle finger. A span is for an, a normal or an average adult male's hand is from thumb to pinky. And so in general, most would say that a cubit is generally around 18 inches and a span is about nine inches. So if you do the math, six cubits would be nine feet, and a span is another nine inches. So six cubits and one span meant that the Masoretic text is saying that Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. So you can imagine that this is probably um, a very, uh, I guess, intimidating uh, part of his statue. But obviously, it wasn't just Goliath's size, that he was tall and he was likely big. But notice Goliath's armor, right? We read here that Goliath wore a metal helmet. He was clothed in armor that weighed 5,000 shekels. And 5,000 shekels is probably approximately 55 kilograms or 125 pounds. So he was, he was carrying and wearing 125 pounds of armor. And his, his bronze greaves, these were like shin guards. So Goliath was wearing these shin guards that was also made of bronze to protect his legs. In fact, from this description, it would appear that that Goliath was basically covered with some sort of metal armor, just about every single part of his body, minus a very small area. And notice Goliath's weapons. He had a javelin. Now, a javelin during this time was not a large spear, but it was a small spear, but it was something that could be used to basically throw as a projectile to an enemy. 
His spear's head, which was made of iron, weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds, all right? I don't know if anyone is into archery, but, or, or you know, even you know, in the sporting event of track and field, but to have a spear with a 15-pound spearhead is not that easy to throw as a projectile. And it describes here in the text that Goliath also had a dedicated shield carrier. So his shield, Goliath's shield, was so big that he actually had another person whose sole job is basically to lift and to move the shield. So if you can picture this, when Goliath comes, he's probably actually coming along, uh, alongside with a shield barrier that's in a, protecting him. So if he crouches, there's nothing that's going to get by uh, him and the shield bearer. So that is the impressive appearance of Goliath. But what I want to take note in this first portion of this passage is not even so much his appearance, but Goliath's defiance. Goliath's defiance. Look at what Goliath says. Look down in verse 8. Goliath called out to Israel, Why have you come out to arrange yourself for battle? Am I not the Philistine and you slaves of Saul? And so what Goliath is doing is that he's basically coming down. So he, he, the Philistines are in the highland. He basically walks down the highland down to the valley. So he is now in the valley, perhaps even several hundred feet below the Israelites. So you may be nine feet, nine inches tall, but if you're several hundred feet down and you're just one man and the Israelites probably had at least a few thousand. Nine feet, nine inches tall still shouldn't be that intimidating. But that's what Goliath does. He, he goes down to the valley, he crosses the valley, and basically he looks up at the Israelite army and he yells out these questions of defiance, challenge, insult, and taunting. And Goliath continues, right? Look what he says in verse 9 or verse 8 and 9, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and strike me down, we will become your slaves. But if I prevail against him and strike him down, then you will become our slaves and serve us. And again, the text actually explains what Goliath says because actually during this time, contrary to maybe even popular belief, this practice of representative single combat was not commonplace during the time of David, Saul, and Goliath. And so because this is not a common practice, uh, the author uses a bit of space to have Goliath explain what he is proposing. And look again what Goliath says. Again, the Philistine says, I openly reproach the battle lines of Israel this day. Now, the Hebrew word haraf is going to be an important word for this chapter. This Hebrew word haraf is going to be used at least four more times. And this word means it can be translated to reproach, to defy, to mock, to insult. 
This verb implies an attitude of pride and insolence and contempt. And there's a notion that whatever you're saying when you're defying, you're trying to pr provoke the other person. So it's not just teasing someone, but you're, you're teasing to provoke them. That is what Goliath is doing when he says, I openly reproach the battle lines of Israel. But notice here that when Goliath is defying the people of Israel, he is really defying God. Goliath is mocking God. And so how does Saul and Israel respond? You would think that, again, one man going down the valley, several hundred feet below you, and you've got hundreds, if not thousands of men, and it's not common practice to just come out as one person. So there's no war protocol here. I would think, we're like, there's only one guy and the rest of the army are several hundred feet away. Let's just charge him, right? But I don't think it's as simple as that sometimes. Here in the United States, we remember sometimes the tragedy of 9-11, right? that there were these Al-Qaeda terrorists that hijacked four different planes. There are only four or five hijackers per plane, over 100 people on the plane. You would think that, hey, um, you know, for the sake of us all, we can just take them on. Three of the planes, to the best of our knowledge, that didn't happen. But there was one, it was one flight where the people, 20 minutes after they realized they were hijacked, all on one accord, rushed the hijackers and forced the hijackers to crash their plane instead of sending that plane either to the US Capitol or the White House. So yeah, it, it, it seems easy, but when you're in the midst, it may not be so easy. But what was Saul and Israel's response to Goliath? Look at verse 11. Their response was fear. Verse 11, it reads, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The two words, dismayed and greatly afraid, they're actually near synonyms. Uh, other English translations, Saul and the Israelites had lost their courage. They were terrified. They were deeply shaken. And understand here that even Saul's son, Jonathan, who showed so much courage back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, even he seemed defeated. The Israelites needed their leader to articulate a plan of response, but King Saul had none. King Saul now, he, he's a broken man. He's out of touch with God. Remember that uh, when we had the description of Saul, Saul was like a head taller than everyone else, all the Israelites. The logical choice to serve as champion for Israel was King Saul, but he was terrified just like everyone else. And notice here in this passage, there's no reference made that Israel sought to pray or to ask God for assistance. They were scared, dismayed, terrified. And if you look down at verse 16, Notice Goliath's persistence in his defiance. Verse 16 reads, Then the Philistine approached 
morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Imagine, this wasn't just a one-time thing. Goliath, first thing in the morning, walks down. Maybe it takes half an hour, gets to the tip of uh, the foothills and yells at the Israelites, send a man, come down here. I defy you and the God of Israel. Nothing happens. He goes home. Toward the end of the day, he goes back does the same thing day after day after day for 40 days. The number 40 is often used as a round number in the Old Testament. And the number 40 often denotes a period of trial and testing. Remember the story of Noah and the flood? Remember how many days? How many days did it rain for? Rain for... 40 days and 40 nights, right? Or when the Israelites, after they didn't trust God and start to wander in the wilderness instead of going to the promised land, how many years did they wander for? 40 years. Or after Jesus was baptized and he went to the wilderness, before he was tempted by Satan, how many days did Jesus fast for? 40 days. So 40 days has also that significance of a period of trial, testing. Goliath takes his stand. He, he, come, he rises up early in the morning, comes back at the end of the day for 40 days. And understand here, brothers and sisters, there is nothing new under the sun. The world has always defied God and his people. You can go back as early as even Genesis chapter 4 when Lamech, right, a descendant of Cain, defied God. Goliath here defies God in 1 Samuel 17. And understand this, anyone, any person who does not possess Jesus as Lord and Savior is defying God. So we see here first, Goliath's defiance. Second, Let's look at David's dedication. David's dedication. Now, even though we meet David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it is only here that we get a formal introduction to our protagonist, David. See, when an important person is introduced in the Old Testament, almost without exception, we are given his genealogy. Right? King Saul was given, when he was introduced in 1 Samuel chapter 9, we read his genealogy. And back in, but back in chapter 16, when we're first introduced to David, we get none of that. I'll just read again by way of reminder. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it reads, Samuel said to David, are these all the young men? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is shepherding the sheep. Then David said to Jesse, or excuse me, then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not turn around until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And Yahweh said, arise, anoint him for this is he. If you read that text, all of that happens 
and we don't even know the name of this youngest person. But of course, we read later on that it is David. David, before his anointing and before the spirit of Yahweh rushed mightily upon him, David was a nobody. You didn't know who David was. He wasn't even the most prominent person in his family. But here we are formally introduced now to David. And notice that as he is introduced, the author of 1 Samuel does not focus on his external appearances, unlike Goliath. We don't get much of his externals, but rather we see David's exemplary character through his dedication and his service. Look again in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrahite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. He had eight sons. Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years. And the three older sons of Jesse had gone. They had gone after Saul to the battle. So the way that this genealogy starts, it's a rather short one. It introduces Jesse. Now, Jesse isn't like, we don't think Jesse is so old that he's bedridden and couldn't see. He's not like Eli back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. What we probably understand is that Jesse is just too old to go into battle, right? There's a certain point in time where you just get too old. You can still walk, you can still move around, but you're just not fit enough, strong enough to go into battle. And so you remembered back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, remember when Samuel warned the Israelites and say, hey, if you guys decide you want an earthly king, this earthly king is going to take everything from you. He's going to take your best men, your best young sons and daughters for service. So, so Jesse was too old to serve. And so what was the best, what was the first fruits of Jesse's family? Well, it was the three oldest sons, right? Eliab, Abinadab, Shema. So Jesse's best young men were his three eldest sons. It was not David. But let's look at the character of David. There are at least five things that I see here in the text regarding David. First, David is faithful. Look at verse 15. David went back and forth from Saul to shepherd his father's flock at Bethlehem. Now, for those of you who are with us last week, when we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 16, you remember that Saul had summoned David to be his royal musician, right? Whenever evil spirits were attacking Saul, that Saul would have David play music to help him and to restore some sanity to his soul. So Saul lives in Gibeah. David and his family live in Bethlehem. And so David would primarily, as the musician, have to be in the court of, of King Saul. But whenever he had a chance, he still had to go all the way down to Bethlehem to continue to help and serve his family and take care of the sheep. So it's kind of like he had two full-time jobs, all right, as a, as a youngin, And he was faithful to that. He, he didn't say, you know, see ya, family. You know, I've got a better gig and says goodbye. He continues to serve King Saul and his family going back and forth, back and forth. And so we see David's dedication here. 
He's working two jobs. He's attending as a royal musician, and he fulfills his obligation back at home in Bethlehem. And noticing this, his father, Jesse, understands that if anyone is to be trusted with an important task, it would be David. Remember, David had seven brothers. He was number eight. If you were to send, you know, as the dad, send something, you know, for someone who's important, you might have picked brother number four, five, eh, maybe six or seven. But why would you pick son number eight? Well, because I think Jesse understood that, secondly, that David is dependable. David is dependable. Look at verse 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this royal, or this roast, roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camps to your brother. So understand that the context of, uh, of warfare and military 3,000 years ago with the Israelites is very different from us today. If one of your family members decides to enlist in the army or the air force or Marines, you just assume your government is going to take care of their lodging, take care of all their food. That's actually not what happens 3,000 years ago with the Israelites. If you as a family send your three sons to battle, you're responsible for feeding them. It wasn't King Saul. <laughs> and so Jesse is probably like, hey, what's going on here? It, 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 you know, my... My three sons have been gone for more than a month. I haven't heard any news. They're probably going to be out of food because we probably only gave them food for a week or two. So, hey, David, I've got an important task for you, right? Get the best roasted grain, something that they can eat right away, and bring a bushel of this food as well as some gifts to the commander and bring it to um, the, the people, to, to, uh, to the commanders and to my sons. And I think this, this reminds me of the story of Jacob and Joseph. Remember that when Jacob's 11 sons were up and uh, out and about that, or 11, 10 sons at least, that uh, Jacob had trusted Joseph to send Joseph to check in on his older brothers in Shechem. So we see that David uh, is dependable. Thirdly, we see that David is diligent. Look down in verse 20. So David arose early in the morning, early in the morning. Let me explain why I think this is significant. So David is in Bethlehem, and the journey from Bethlehem to the battle lines is about 15 miles. And if you can imagine during those days, traveling 15 miles as a young man in one day is not too much of a problem. I would think if I were to receive these instructions from my dad, I would say, oh, you know, I'll just get up, you know, take a shower and, you know, brush up and get ready. And if I take it easy, uh, I'll set out in the morning and get there probably at the end of the day before it gets dark. But that's not what David does. David sets out very early in the morning certainly before sunrise, to be able to make it to the battle lines by early to mid-morning. 
So he's going to travel 15 miles in a span of a few hours to get there first thing in the morning, assuming that once he does everything he he's able to do, to be able to get back home by the end of the day. He's not going to spend a few nights there. He's going to make a quick trip there. So he gets up early in the morning. David is diligent. And not only do we see that he's dependable, he's diligent. Fourthly, David is responsible. Look at verse 20 again. David left the flock with a keeper and carried the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. Notice that the text says that David left his flock with a keeper. Now, what does that mean? Uh, most of you live in apartment, a condominium, a house. And so if you need some help taking care of the house, you might hire perhaps a, a house cleaner. If your house needs to be cleaned or if something's broken, you might hire a handyman, right? But if you need someone to protect your house, to make sure nothing happens to your house, you will more likely find a security guard or a good guard dog, perhaps. And so what David's priority here, he's not looking for another shepherd for this task. He's likely only going to be gone for a day, but it says that David left the flock with a keeper. The word keeper is not a word for shepherd. It is a generic term for a person who keeps watch and guard over something. And, and this highlights David's priority to protect and guard the family assets, even for a day. He has attention to detail. He is responsible. And not only that, but he doesn't delegate this task to another servant. He hand carries and hand delivers the supplies. And he even leaves that baggage in the care of a baggage keeper. So we see he's, he's diligent, he's responsible. And, and finally, I think even in these verses, we see that David is devoted. David is devoted. Look at verse 22. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper. And what does it say? He ran to the battlefield and entered in order to greet his brothers. Again, he gets up really early. Takes him maybe a few hours. He gets um, to there. He drops off off the supplies. You would think, oh, you know, there's a lot of people. Let me take a little break, water break, and, you know, maybe take a look around to see what's going on. No, the text says that David runs to the battlefield. Probably it's morning now to greet his brothers. He doesn't tarry. He doesn't delay. He doesn't take a short break. He's delivered the supplies. Now he's searching for his brothers so he can report back to his father as soon as possible on their welfare. See, notice here that when, when Goliath is introduced, we focus on what he looks like. We focus on what he wears. And of course, his defiance. But when we're introduced to David, the author is drawing attention to his character and his character of dedication. And I might note here that this isn't all about David. Remember in the previous chapter, after Samuel anoints David, what does it say? It said, the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David. 
So from here on forward, when we see David the Great, it's David the Great because he was empowered and enabled by the Spirit of Yahweh, by the Holy Spirit. And so my question to all of you this morning is this. Are you faithful? Are you dependable? Are you diligent? Are you responsible? Are you devoted? And understand that it's not just you. In fact, it's not you. It's God's Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit in you that empowers you to have this type of dedication that David displays. Now, we learn even more now about David, who was spirit-enabled, thirdly, through David's decisiveness. David's decisiveness. And we see David's decisiveness as he responds to what he hears and what he sees. Let's first see, or let's first look at what David hears. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, As David was speaking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the battle lines of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. So, picture the scene. Remember, Goliath comes in the morning, he goes home. He comes back in the evening, he goes home. He does this for 40 days. And now it is likely he is now coming for his morning taunt. But this time it's different. This time he not only goes to the valley, he starts climbing up the hill towards the Israelites. And in some of your translations, it says, as David was speaking to them, behold. Now some... Bible translators said, ah, that's just a complicated, you know, added word. That doesn't sound smooth. So some of your Bible translations may not have that word behold. But some of you, it may be translated suddenly. That out of nowhere, unexpectedly, here now comes Goliath. Well, it was expected because he's been doing it for the last 40 days. But what's not expected is that Goliath is now coming up the hill. He's closer than ever before. You don't need to be in the front lines to now hear his voice. You could be somewhere further in the back. And so Goliath approaches closer than ever, coming partway up the ravine. This Hebrew word for to come up, it again has the depiction that Goliath has descended into the valley and begins to climb up the canyon toward the Israelite army. He comes close enough that when he speaks, David is able to hear. He is able to discern and hear Goliath's words. But notice not just what David hears, but what David sees. Look in verse 24 and 25. Now all the men of Israel saw the man, and they fled from him and were greatly afraid. So David sees two things. He sees Goliath coming up, and here he is. He sees his oldest brothers, the prime men, the strongest men, as well as hundreds, if not thousands, of Israelites who are on the high ground, and their response 
was to retreat back even further from the edge of the foothills. Even on the high ground, the Israelite army retreats back from the giant. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to reproach Israel. Now, the term the men of Israel in verse 25, in the original Hebrew, it's actually in the singular. It is not plural. So another English Bible reads, previously an Israelite man had declared. But in Hebrew, oftentimes a singular noun is used as what's called a collective singular. A collective singular. So what this could mean is that these men of Israel were speaking to one another. They were talking with one another. They were, they were speaking amongst themselves. And so this is what David sees. He sees the giant starting to come up. He sees the Israelites retreating back. And instead of talking back to the giant, they're murmuring among themselves. And David, what David sees is that this army of Israel is inoperative and they are in utter disarray. Goliath is defying Israel, and yet this doesn't arouse any type of action upon, uh, on the Israelites. And th David is probably dumbfounded because he already hears that the people are saying that the king is promising great riches. He's promising the king's daughter's hand in marriage. And the king is promising no taxes for the rest of your life and the life of your family and household. I mean, for those of you who pay taxes, you understand. No taxes for the rest of your life is a really good deal. So look at verse 26. David hears, David sees, and so what David now does for the first time in this entire passage, in fact, for the first time in the entire Bible, we hear David speak his first words. David is a literary mute at this point. He has never spoken before in the story. And so David breaks his silence in verse 26, and his first recorded words consist of two questions. What will be done for the man who strikes down the Philistine to take away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should reproach the battle lines of the living God? Based on the context, David is not asking for more information. <clears throat> He's not questioning the appropriateness of the king's reward. David asked these questions to try to ignite righteous indignation of his colleagues to this Philistine. See, at the surface, the story seems to be just about David and Goliath, the Philistines and the Israelites. But David discerns that Goliath's threat was not merely physical or political, it was theological. 
The fight between representatives of these warring factions was to believe that the battle was ultimately decided by God or by the gods. The champion representing the more powerful deity would triumph. That's what this was about 3,000 years ago. And notice one other type of silence up until this point. You look carefully in the first 25 verses of chapter 17. There is no mention of God. Look carefully. There's no Yahweh, no Elohim, no mention of God. When David speaks, he introduces a whole new worldview. He injects God into this question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is asking, doesn't having a living God make a difference in all this? We have a living God. They have Dagon, a lifeless false idol. Do you expect that a living God will allow an uncircumcised Philistine to trample God's name and reputation in theological mud? To David, God's honor was at stake. Israel thought the Philistine, Goliath, was invulnerable. David just recognized that the Philistine was an uncircumcised person, an outsider of God's covenant. And so David is pleading with the armies of Israel, who does this guy think he is? This pagan Philistine is nothing before God, and he has no right to mock the army of the living God. And our application, I think, is this. It's not a matter of if, but when you will be taunted and mocked for trusting the living God. So what is going to be your response today when others defy you for being associated with God? Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you, falsely say all types of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So we see David's dedication and his decisiveness and finally, with the curveball, we see, fourthly, Eliab's denunciation. You know, sometimes the strongest discouragement and resistance you face may be one of your closest loved ones or family. Job's wife counseled Job, remember? Do you still hold fast your, your, your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. That came from his wife. So David's eldest brother, Eliab, is noticeably upset. He had witnessed David's anointing by, by Samuel, and I think that fueled his envy and anger. Eliab resented that he was being outdone by his little baby brother. So he says to David, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know of your arrogance and the wickedness in your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. So Eliab gives five accusations. He's accusing David of wrong motives, irresponsibility, insolence, wickedness, and selfishness. 
And look how David responds. He says in verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not just a word? And even this adverb now, we can infer that this was probably not the first time Eliab had talked like this harshly to David. One person paraphrases David this way. What have I done to offend you now? I happen to be just asking about a very important matter. But David was not deterred by Eliab. Instead, he turns away from Eliab in verse 13, and he goes to another and another, and he says the same word, but the people responded to him in the same way as they did before. So the picture is that David is going to other people. He's saying, well, what did King Saul promise to give to you, to us, if you fought and defeated Goliath? And they all said the same thing. You know, notice here, at no point does David volunteer outrightly to fight Goliath. It wasn't that David believed that he was all that and that he was the best person for the job. Instead, when he uses this line of questioning, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, he was hoping to persuade other soldiers who were bigger, stronger, more experienced to discern the significance of the situation and to take action. So it's not that David thought he alone was able to fight the giant. He actually believed that any Israelite could fight and defeat the giant with the help of the living God. The Greek word that's used for the Hebrew word haraf, which means to taunt and to defy, is oneditso. Oneditso. And interesting, this Greek word oneditso is used to describe only one account of a man taunting and defying God. And the account takes place when Jesus hung on the cross. Let me read. The chief priests with the scribes and, and, and elders, they were saying he saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of, the, of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him rescue him now if he delights in God. For he says, I am the son of God. Now listen carefully. The text then reads, and the two robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. One did so. They were reviling him, taunting him, ridiculing him, heaping insults on him. If anyone fails to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God and denies Jesus' claim as the only mediator to our Heavenly Father, that person is insulting and defying God. But something miraculously happens a few hours later. Remember? 
Let me read again. One of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But there was a change of heart. The other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly, but we are receiving what we deserve, what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. At the start, both criminals were defying Jesus. But a few hours later, the second criminal turned to God, turned to Jesus, and pled for mercy and forgiveness. Don't defy God. Follow the second criminal. Repent, plead for forgiveness. God can give you a new heart even today. Let me pray for us.